Best Advisors Money in 30 podcast. This is episode number five. My name is Jeremy Torgerson. I am the CEO and Senior Investment Advisor Representative at Invest Advisors. Our email address, my email address rather, is jtorgerson at investadvisors.com. You can also obviously check out our website, I hope you do, at nvestadvisors.com. Not, uh, it's the letter N, vest advisors.com. You can also uh, please like, share, follow us on the various social media, wherever you like to be uh, on the interwebs. We are located there. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube now. We're putting up some uh, current webinars that we've done and also um, uh, these podcasts. You can also listen to them on our YouTube channel. Um, I don't know if I missed any. Google Plus, there's several others that you can Hunt us down and find us, but look for investadvisors.com, and uh, we'll begin our podcast here very quickly. I was thinking between two subjects, and I'm, I think next next episode, episode six, I'm going to talk about politics and investing because we're in the throes of the summer of um, the uh, Republican and Democrat. With the conventions just finished, I have no idea if you listen to this podcast, you know, four months from now who is going to be president-elect, whether it's President-elect Clinton or, or Trump. But this is a very unique election year because it is impossible for people to have no opinion. This is a very strange, um, uh, a very interesting year. You know, there's a, there's a Buddhist curse uh, that used to be said to people. They say, may you live in interesting times. And with um, world events transpiring the way they are, whether it's uh, the global fight against terrorism, or it's the uh, the Brexit vote and what that may do to the European Union, and then this most remarkable United States presidential election where the sides have been drawn in ways that you would never have seen before. And literally entire masses of people are changing political affiliation um, in ways that we would never have expected. Um, we live in very, very interesting times. So I'm going to talk about next podcast about why you should make sure that you keep your political views away from and totally apart from your investing views. And we'll try to back that up with some good data about, um, you know, do how does history, how have we, how has the United States done under various uh, presidential administrations and and that thing. So, you know, although we all have very strong opinions on uh, what's going on right now in our political scene, that is the worst thing to be basing your investments on. And also, I'll probably punch a little bit because I like to. Uh, some of these guys that take advantage of and prey upon people's concerns and fears about the future, uh, most notably gold pitchmen on television. So I'll, I'll get into some of that as well. But today I want to talk about another thing that came up, um, which really surprised me, um, that uh, happens so frequently that I think it, it puts a huge stain on the financial services industry as a, as a whole. And, um, uh, and, and it still always boggles my mind how people can fall for them over and over again. But I'm talking about uh, either, either investment fraud or Ponzi schemes, and I'll explain what they are here very quickly, um, and give you six things that you can do, practical things, to help steer clear of of uh, a scummy pitch man who may be out trying to convince you to do something incorrect. But in our industry, we get uh, a lot of trade papers. We get a lot of news coming in, either from directly from a state security advisor 
uh, securities board like in here and invest advisors we're based in the state of Texas we have clients scattered around but but I get a lot of emails uh, almost every day from um, the state uh, of Texas securities division and that are announcing some sort of sanction fine uh, uh, punishment char criminal charges even sometimes against uh, investment advisors for either you know fraudulent or misleading or or outright Ponzi scheme type of, of adventures that these these guys are on, and I think you know it's it's difficult because I in in all of my years as an investment advisor, um, I have met such incredibly good people um, in the investment world, and not everybody it would we're not all doing our business the same way, and we're not all focused the same way on like this targeted client we we all have our preferred client base that we like to work with we all like to um, manage money in a specific way but you you get that bad apple that spoils the lot for everybody um, and that really bothers me I'd like I'd like to see aggressive prosecution of, of fraudsters um, I see real shameful stuff more in insurance agents um, who are less regulated um, than I do in the investment advisors. I, I could go on and on about the insurance industry and, and the cleanup that it needs to have happen. Um, but I want to talk today specifically and give you six, six practical things that you can do to avoid um, or do your best to steer clear of investment schemes that are not what they appear to be. Okay. So, and I'm going to talk very quickly about that this could actually happen um, you, it'll, you'll be surprised where the frauds will come from. And in my own experience, I had a, a, a mentor in this business many years ago. I took, I was actually in this, in this industry kind of twice. When I was uh, a fresh-faced kid, uh, 22 years old, I was recruited by an insurance company um, to, uh, to promote uh, mostly term life insurance, but they also did some uh, basic and mutual fund and annuity type investing. And um, I was put under a sales leader uh, who was to mentor me. And I, his first name was Brian. I won't go any further than that. And uh, being a really young kid in this industry um, is it's one of the most brutal things that you can do. And I was so I was successful to a point. But I was a young newlywed. Um, and when my wife, um, we found out that she was pregnant with our first child, she wanted just very badly to stay home with our children. And I said, you know what, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I was personally a latchkey kid when I was a kid. So it was, it was important that my kids had, had mom at home. And, and uh, so anyway, we, I decided, I mean, step out of that because I was struggling to be very successful at, at that age and uh, went on to other things where I started to manage uh, restaurants and uh, manage them from a multi-unit and then director of operations position and then we ended up owning two of our own restaurants um, and then finally I gave all of that up and said I wanted to go back to do the financial stuff which is what I really wanted to do in the first place um, in 2008 so 2007 I mean so anyway when I was a young kid um, I was put with this uh, particular very charismatic guy and I, I, I really looked up to him for many many years um, I never saw anything uh, suspicious. I thought everything seemed fine. I thought he was a bit uh, enthusiastic, and sometimes his sales pitch, um, I don't want to say he, it was, there were never lies. I could never say that. But there was, 
there was um, enthusiastic spin on his product. I'll put it that way. That this Brian um, was 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 guilty of. I would say, um, but. I had lost track of Brian for about 15 years, and I never really gave much thought to him. And then maybe in about 2010 or so, like you all do now, I'm sure, when you get on Facebook or, or uh, other places and you think, God, I wonder what happened to so-and-so. And so you, you look him up. In our case, there are other places that you can also look up a person, so I don't have to just hunt him down on Facebook or, or LinkedIn. I can also look in uh, the, the uh, industries. Uh, public records and see what happened. And much to my surprise, when I searched for him, I found out that there had been a, a real serious problem that he had gotten into. He had, be, he had formed his own company. Um, he had been working with his uh, one of his sons and had uh, gotten into trouble um, moving client money around in accounts and was barred. His son was barred for, for permanently, for, for life, from the National Futures Association back in, I don't know, 2008, 2009, I can't remember. And, uh, uh, but Brian, as the principal of the firm, as the head guy, who was supposed to be responsible for the trading activity of your of the employees, um, had been uh, barred for five years and fined. And so I was really astonished. And I thought, I can't believe that, that he could be um, one of those guys. You know, this is a person that I looked up to in many ways. So I was very surprised by that. And again, I just sort of like, wow, I can't believe it. I kind of shared with my wife. I said, you wouldn't believe what I read about Brian, and I wonder what's going on with that. So I left it alone and really kind of forgot about it until just a couple years ago. And I thought, again, I wonder, you know, whatever shook up of that. Did he get back in the business? What's he up to? And uh, looked again, and this time there's all this fresh news out there that this time uh, he had been uh, charged in, uh, with a whole different company that he created, of creating a, a, a small Ponzi scheme and had been using investor money for personal gain, uh, personal expenses, and now owes several million dollars back to um, investors that and had, had been helped by an attorney uh, uh, in California to conduct basically wire fraud, taking people's money, making a claim uh, that it would be invested in some way, and then um, using the money for personal purposes. Folks, if you watch the TV show on CNBC or, you know, now look it up on Hulu or some of these other uh, on-demand services, the the show American Greed, that's basically what happened. We had, you know, what I thought was a real good guy um, turned out to be a guy that, that either got himself into a lot of debt. I don't know. I don't know the situation behind why. And it really, to me, doesn't matter. You don't, you don't misappropriate client funds. And for some people, the temptation to live large and then back it up and and figure out a way to pay for it later um, is a very compelling thing. So you have to be very, very careful about um, the kind of person that you trust your money with. That's one of the, that's a huge um, uh, concern for investors. And of course, you'll you'll know that the big one that I could talk about as giving you an example is Bernie Madoff. I'm going to use him as an example of of, um, of why sometimes you know you wouldn't think that Bernie Madoff, for example, did not rip off poor people. Bernie Madoff ripped off rich people who should have known better, and I'll get into that here in just a second. Okay, so here is my take on how you, as an investor, how you as an investor need to 
be wary, be very skeptical of the people that you want to trust your money with. And here are six practical, um, useful um, to-do list, my checklist for you to make sure that, and I can't promise you'll never be taken or swindled by somebody who's really better looking than me and a much smoother talker than me. Maybe, maybe, you know, they'll, they'll get past your BS detector inside your head and actually have, you know, do this for you. And there's a ton of psychology about why these con men are actually very good at what they do and why we fall for them. I mean, I, I thought I'll probably follow this up with a blog post on our website at Invest Advisors about the study in behavioral finance and neurofinance about why we fall for these kinds of cons and what what is in our psyche that makes us want to believe in something that's really frankly not believable so we'll touch that in a minute but here are my six steps to help you avoid um, a, a a bad situation for your financial life okay number one please check your advisors and your advisors companies histories okay usually you you don't have somebody who goes from being a swell guy and all-around good human being given the keys to the city and then suddenly become sleazy okay um, yeah you sometimes get people that fly under the radar for a long long time but that's not common in my experience usually you've got little signs that there's a problem ahead of uh, a big problem and so what you can do as a consumer and hopefully every advisor's website and sales literature now now provides a link to this there is a website that is run by the financial uh, uh, regulatory body called FINRA that is where anybody who is a commissioned uh, advisor with a, either a stockbroker license or a mutual fund license or securities or a commodities broker uh, futures or currency exchange person, any of these people that have a government regulatory license like that that earn commission on their pay will have to have a, uh, a, 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 a page on FINRA's um, public disclosure uh, search, in, search engine that's called Broker Check. So if you look for FINRA.org Broker Check, you should be able to find uh, a place to do a search for not only an individual but a firm and FINRA has just recently revamped it and made it very easy to look at you'll see a timeline um, of the employee or that particular agents um, entire registered history with FINRA um, how long they've been in the business uh, when they've changed firms if there's any gap in employment and along that timeline are these big red dots that will show up if there's been any kind of, of uh, event in that advisor's life that requires a public disclosure. And those things can be a uh, customer dispute, um, a, a fine or a censure or an investigation by the, that person's company or by a regulatory body. If they have had a financial uh, setback of some sort or they're in financial straits, the, we're required to disclose um, you know, things like tax liens, bankruptcies, um, uh, arrests for anything. You have to disclose these types of, of events, and they're made public. So you can kind of get at least a look at this person's um, uh, professional life as a money handler in this case. Now, will people make mistakes? Will, will bad things happen to people? Sure. There could be 
you know, bankruptcy that, that has to do with, uh, you know, maybe medical bills from a, a very sick child or something before they became an advisor or, um, you know, there may be circumstances that your advisor is still human, but you should be able to, using FINRA's broker check, get an idea of not just the advisor themselves um, uh, and how they, how they comport themselves around, oh, I used a big word, how they handle themselves around money. Um, and especially because you're asking them to handle yours. <laughs> so make sure that you know how they handle money in general. Um, but also FINRA's broker check is really, really helpful because if you have a guy who's asking you, guy or gal who's asking you to be, I want to be your advisor, I want your business, and they're squeaky clean, it's also sometimes very helpful that you can do a, a search on their firm. And firms, the culture of a firm will very much gravitate toward an advisor. So if you see a firm, even if the advisor's record is clean, but they've been at a specific firm for 15 or 20 years, and that firm has got lots and lots and lots of customer disputes and claims, what you'll know for sure is that that firm is probably not um, watching their advisors closely, or the culture at the firm is something that you should be, uh, you should feel a little sketchy about. So there's a great place to start is make sure you do your research on an individual before you sign up and become a client, okay? Now, if they are a fee-only advisor, this is where our industry gets very confusing. I'm sure it's not the only place. But when you are, there's two basic ways that I can do business with you in this industry. I can either earn a commission for a transaction. Those are like stockbrokers, okay? They're regulated by FINRA, and that's what I just talked about. If you do fee-based business, so either you charge the client a planning fee or you charge uh, what we do here at Invest mostly is an asset under management fee. So if the client's got, you know, you bring us a $100,000 IRA account, we will manage that money for you. We charge no commissions as we buy and sell investments to, man to manage the strategy for you. But we charge a certain percentage of the account balance as our advisory fee. Okay, and it goes down. We have a tiered system here so that it, as your account balance grows, you pay less and less of a percentage. There's very little reason to keep charging someone with a million dollars the same percentage you charge someone with 50000 That doesn't make any sense, and that's not fair. So anyway, I digress. But on that side, the, there's a couple things that happen there. If we are a fee-based advisor, your advisor at the time, either before or at the time that you sign a client agreement with them, they are required to give you... Um, a couple of things. Their firm's what's called a Form ADV, or sometimes we call it the brochure. Okay, that is a form a form that shows the history of and all sorts of specific government required information about our company. Okay, ours is located, for example, on our website. We feel like we have nothing to to hide, so we're more than happy to show you our firm's brochure, just even as a prospective client. And we we link that at the bottom of every page in the footer where you can look at our firm's uh, brochure. Okay, also your individual advisor, your fee-based advisor, the person who will be personally responsible for handling your money, also has. A, a kind of an addendum we call that part 2b of the of the client brochure so they will list again the same kinds of things have they ever had any kind of legal trouble are they are they financially solvent these kinds of questions will be answered there okay so that's the number one is that protect yourself 
by educating yourself about your broker. You may never understand your broker's full strategy. I hope you do, but you know, or not. You don't need to understand the minutia of the business, but educate yourself about the person who you're going to trust. With that, uh, with that, this is your blood, sweat, and tear money. People work very, very hard for their retirement money, and and they place tremendous. You know, as a, as a consumer, you're placing tremendous faith that I know, number one, that I'm not going to rip you off, that I know what I'm doing, and that I care enough about you to help you get your money to the goal line, which we're trying to invest. So I hope that um, you, the least you can do is before you sign anything with anybody, you do your research on who that person is and see what kind of experiences other consumers have had with them in the past. Okay? That's number one. Number two, I would personally avoid any advisor or advisor firm that takes custody of your money. Now, that's going to be something that would probably other advisors listening to this may take real strong exception to because there are, again, lots and lots of good, honest financial advisors. But the temptation is always there. If I have actual possession of your money, it's in an account that you wrote the check to me, for example, and I'm supposed to pool it with other people's money in an investment thing and then just keep a, re- a record of how much of that pot is yours, okay? That is, the temptation is so great, not just to steal it from other people, but to manipulate the data so that, in fact, this the same example that I'm using with my former mentor, Brian, ages ago, um, that I found out the first bit of trouble that they got into in their firm was exactly this, that he was taking client money because they had custody of it, they had possession of it, and to hide the fact that they were not doing as well with the client investments as they claimed, they would borrow money from one client's account, shift it into your account, print your statement, and then the next day they would shift that client money back out to another account, back to the original account, so that it would look like you did better than you're actually doing, okay? Uh, there's a way to avoid that kind of, of um, conflict, obvious conflict of interest, but it's also that, that ability for your advisor to be deceptive, and that is to make sure that your advisor is one who never personally takes custody of your funds. So, for example, at Invest, we have, we're a management firm, but we use a variety of different account custodians to manage your money. So like our robo service, we actually have partnered with Betterment and they have your money. You never write a check to Invest Advisors. If you're going to deposit money to that account, you write it to Betterment and it goes to Betterment. We have access to see it and we can manage it for you, but we can't we never we never have the money in our hands. Okay? So that the the, the other reason why this is important is because if I have the ability to write statements because I have custody of your money, I can put pretty much whatever I wanted to on a statement and mail it to you. If we use outside custodians for the money, uh, to, for money for the money holding, the safekeeping of it, the custodian is always going to print that statement and send it to you third party. So there's no way that I, as the investment advisor, can spin my way out of it or lie about the balance you have. Also, all of our custodians that we choose have direct online access so our clients can see their money anytime by logging in. And it has nothing to do with like going through my website to see it. Although we link them at the website, you don't have to do that. So whether your account is at you know something like John Hancock or your account is at 
Um, you know, we use Aspire for our 401, 403B uh, clients. We use um, uh, First Clearing. We have several of them. And if you bring one to us, you might even, if you got a Charles Schwab account, we can service that account without having to move it. So your custodian is irrelevant to the management we can do. We need access to it in order to do the buying and selling of things that uh, we need to do to manage the money according to the strategy that you and I set up. But we never, ever take possession of your money. It's always yours. It's always in an account in your name, separate from all, their, our, all of our other clients, and you have control and access to that account remotely also. Okay? So that's the second thing. So the, the idea, again, is if you have a, a registered advisor who's, who's wanting to give you, you know, take your business, and if you are concerned about making sure that that your money is accessible to you and is not commingled with other people's money and you're just not sure about making, you know, if this advisor is going to write their own statements and things, um, tell them you want an outside custodian to handle the money, not the inside. Some advisors do that, some don't. Okay, you just have to ask. And not, I will say this, not, of course not, not every advisor who takes custody of client funds is a bad person or is going to do something you know, nefarious with it. But that's an easier way for a person who's either unscrupulous or shady, or frankly, just maybe they back themselves in a corner financially and here they've got access to your money and they, they'll just borrow it and then they'll pay it back later and they promise themselves and then they get themselves in a mess. That temptation is much, much, much lower if the money is not here at, at, at my firm, but it's way over there at Wells Fargo or something like that, and I'm just managing it for you, okay? So again, that's something to consider. Now, the reason that I, I mentioned I was going to talk about Bernie Madoff, the people always ask me, how did Bernie get away with it? Because we believe his Ponzi scheme um, lasted for more than 20 years, and there were warning signs. People were concerned about it. There's a couple of things that let Bernie get away with it easier, okay? Number one was he took custody of your funds. He was his own custodian. Okay. Number two was Bernie printed his own statements. He had an actual uh, puppet firm downstairs, which in a phony accounting office, everything, but he printed just totally fabricated fictitious statements and sent them to his clients. During the good years, during the late 90s up to all the way to 2008, um, very few clients ever wanted to take money out. They were, they, their accounts were doing well, according to Bernie's statements. It was when clients got fearful. This is usually when Ponzi schemes collapse, by the way, is when there, there's a sudden market jolt that scares investors, and then several of them want their money out at once, all of it. Then there, suddenly there's a problem because he no longer has the money to keep the, the scheme up. I should stop for a minute and explain what's a, you know, a fraudulent investment is just a fraud. Somebody put, who puts something out that's not what it pretends to be. That's that. But what a Ponzi scheme is specifically is when you, it's like a, basically a pyramid scheme that you're putting money in and the earlier investors are promised something. You know, in Bernie's case, about 11% return is what he promised, guaranteed, minimum. So here you're putting money in um, to an account and then Bernie is using the money, your money, for his personal expenses. So he's living large on your dime, okay? So your, your account does no, no longer has real money in it. It has phony money that Bernie's put on a statement. Then to cover your money, because you might want it out one day, Bernie needs another investor who's going to take that investor's money and put it back in your account 
okay, in order to make it look like it's yours. And then, then therefore, all of a sudden, now he's got another generation of client accounts that he's going to have to take the, some money from a third generation to put the money back into the second generation. And that's what began this long cascade, but also Bernie was siphoning money out of it. They don't even know how much he got away with, but they believe it was in the billions of dollars, which is shocking. Shocking that he was able to do it. There is so much, they actually can't compute it. Okay, I'm going to come back to Bernie in one of my later examples. So number two was avoid CIA, or I'm sorry, avoid registered investment advisors or, um, or companies that take custody. Number three is I want you to um, insist on seeing the financial records of the firm. Okay, this is going to be more important for um, smaller firms or privately owned firms. But if you were, uh, for example, going to be uh, become a client of... Let me think of a private one. Edward Jones is a private, privately owned major firm in the United States. They're not publicly traded. So they don't have to post their financial documents the same way that they would, you know, like a, if they were a publicly traded corporation with stock, they have to put out quarterly financials and, and give guidance to investors and that kind of thing. Edward Jones is a privately held uh, general partnership with a limited partnership uh, attachment to it. And so they have internal financials and they have to report some financials out um, to the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, but it's not detailed. So before you put money with a firm, you ought to make, you have every right to ask them to see their financial records to make sure they're in uh, good financial straits. Again, it, the, 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 the safety net here kind of goes back to the first one uh, or about, about, about custody. If somebody is in bad financial straits, even a good person may be tempted to do something bad with money. Okay, so this is just, again, a, a, a kind of a precautionary thing. Make sure the company you're with, for example, has a good credit rating. Make sure that if you're, if you're putting money with an insurance agency, all of these companies are given ratings by Standard & Poor's and other rating agencies. Find out what their rating is, and that shows financial stability and the ability to repay um, claims owed. Okay, so make sure of that. Um, I will say that most investment firms now have to, com have to contribute to um, a, a uh, insurance very similar to the FDIC, like you have at the bank. Um, they, they contribute and have insurance premiums uh, paid to cover your account through a company called the SIPC, Securities Investors Protection Corporation, which allows um, the insurance agent, the, I'm sorry, the investment company, if they collapsed and went under, not that they stole the money necessarily, but if they went under and, and dissolved, your accounts are insured up to certain dollar amounts, and you need to ask them. You can also ask them about their SIPC insurance or other account insurance in case of the insolvency of the firm. Okay, number four, work with a full fiduciary if possible. Then this is not going to protect you necessarily from fraud, but again, it's one of these extra safeguards. In and I, I I'm going to kind of stop and kind of talk just about some standards. There have been, if you follow this sort of stuff, if you're listening to this podcast, obviously money matters to you. This year, and it's been been going on for about the last two years, that the U.S. Department of Labor and the Securities and Exchange Commission have been wanting to impose higher standards on the way we manage money for you professionally, okay? Um, they have gotten it successfully uh, implemented um, even though there's some legal challenges to stop it, they have um, the Department of Labor said at least for employer-sponsored retirement plans, so like your 401k 
at work, that there needs to be a, a relationship with the money manager that is a fiduciary relationship, okay? Um, what that means is a fiduciary means that they are acting in the client's best interest um, in all money matters. Basically, I'm managing your money like it's my own, and I have to treat it with that much care. Now, you may think, why is this like a big thing? And what I would ask is, why is the industry fighting imposing this standard? I mean, isn't it smart? Aren't we all after trying to do what's right for the client? Um, the industry itself, for the vast majority of the industry, is not subject to fiduciary standards. Um, they are on the commission side of our business, okay, which is any agent with a stockbroker, or they sometimes call them a series license, series seven, series 66, I'm sorry, 60, or series, or series six, let me try to say that easy for me to say, um, a stockbroker license or, or variable annuity and mutual fund agent, somebody like that, they are responsible. Their legal responsibility is to make sure that when they sell you their product, that at the time you purchased it, it was generally suitable for somebody with your basic age, income level, risk tolerance, etc. Okay, they call that a suitability standard. That the product they were selling you had to be suitable for you at the time you bought it. That is the limit right now of your stockbroker's responsibility to you. So if your broker is on commission. That's all they have to do. Now, good ones obviously want to do better for you than that, and they want to help you with, um, you know, when is the right time to sell it. They don't even have to tell you that. Or if you buy the stock from them, the company could go belly up six months from now, and they don't have to tell you that maybe we should consider getting out of this, or they don't have to follow that transaction anymore. They did a transaction. At the time they did the transaction, it was suitable generally for somebody like you, and they got paid for that transaction, but meanwhile, they're off. So that's been the standard for forever in the investment world, and they're, the Department of Labor and the Securities and Exchange Commission are trying to change that. Now, on the fee-based world, which is the other side of the... Um, industry, um, which is where invest advisors chose to go to, we are already required to act as full fiduciaries of our clients' money at every time because we charge a fee to manage the money. So therefore, our duty to manage it doesn't end with a transaction. We have to continue to manage the money in a responsible way and for your best interests. So um, hiring and working with somebody who is a full fiduciary for you puts the advisor on, uh, on, on a higher plane of operating excellence already than what's required if they just sell you a stock. Okay, So there's my shameless pitch that I believe that if you have an investment account that you want someone to manage, Yes, you could do it through a commission advisor. I strongly believe, and I was both, guys, for years and years, so I'm not you know, trying to spin this toward me. I made the choice that the only ethical way for me to run this business going forward was to do it as a fee-only advisor. So we made that choice, and I had to sacrifice a huge potential income source for me in order to do what's right by my clients. So I would consider always using a fiduciary. Okay, so that was number four. And I'll, I'll knock these, these back down again as we get finished up here. Number five, the numbers of investments that generally cause, or not the number, the type of investments that usually cause the problem 
are prom- are notes or or, or uh, investments that are not traded publicly, and that makes the information you get on them very difficult to find. So, in fact, my friend Brian got into his last bit of trouble selling promissory notes um, on his own company, promising things like 20-25% return per year. Um, if Basically, he was selling IOUs to his own company to investors. Okay, And then the money was not being used to expand the company like he promised, being used for personal expenses. Okay, So, in that case, um, you have... There's a way to protect yourself in some instance. If you avoid, here's I'll say it this way, avoid investments that are what's called illiquid investments. Avoid those that are not traded actively on an exchange somewhere so that you can't get out of them tomorrow. So there, And there are several kinds. And I'm not saying that they're all shady, but I'm saying that it's very difficult to get information on them sometimes. It's very difficult to get up-to-date information on them sometimes. And it's very difficult to get out of them sometimes. Sometimes you have only windows per year that you can get out of certain investments. Now, some of the ones that may be pitched to you that you should be very cautious about, or at least be willing to invest at least only a small percentage of your money in, are promissory notes, like I just said. These are IOUs, some sort of of internal consumption type of thing. Um, Or they call them non-traded business development corporations, BDCs, business development uh, corporation. These are companies that want to raise money to like go into business or to expand their business, but they don't want to go public in some way. They don't want to either issue a bond and get public debt, or they don't want to issue stock and do public stock. So they offer um, uh, untraded, and that's the big key word there, a non-traded uh, business development corporations or non-traded REIT, R-E-I-T. And these are real estate investment trusts. That's what REIT stands for. And what a REIT does generally is take either like raw land and develop it into something useful, or they'll take like they manage malls or skyscrapers, things like that. And um, you will be given a percentage of the profit. The profit on REITs can be very high because of the way they're taxed, and I won't go into that in this detail, but REITs can be very lucrative investments for a small portion of your money. But you can buy REITs that are actively traded on the stock market so that you can come and go as you might want to. Doing a non-traded REIT or a non-traded business development or economic development corporation um, uh, project puts the money at greater risk because you can't get out of them necessarily anytime you want to. There's no way to go to an exchange like the New York Stock Exchange and find a buyer for it and sell it. You usually have to sell back to the company that's issuing this thing, and then you hopefully get your money out. So that's another way that you can avoid uh, a risky uh, situation about uh, and avoid a Ponzi scheme is to avoid investments that are not widely seen and widely traded on markets. This is the same thing, guys, by the way. Um, let me throw these in. Um, in the same category as a Ponzi scheme or a fraud, even though they're not necessarily. But a lot of investors like to toy with penny stocks. These are stocks that are generally not just a penny or, or a few cents, but we usually categorize them as, as stocks that sell for under 4 or $5 a share, depending on where you draw that line. Also, they're not usually traded on a major exchange. They're traded on either regional exchanges or on bulletin board systems, we call those. And they usually have... 
like a little bit of a sales brochure. We call them the pink sheets. So when you see small, small, small local little companies and they issue a little bit of stock and they're trying to raise money, um, those stocks are extraordinarily volatile. And the failure rate on penny stock companies is, I don't even know the number, but it's way over 90%. So you want to avoid penny stocks, which again are not widely traded, not exposed to a lot of investor scrutiny. Anybody that's trying to fly their, their investment low under the radar, be, be very, very concerned. You know, and that, it'll actually touch my, my last one, which is number six, which is keep your greed in check, okay? And let me touch Bernie Madoff for a minute, and then I want to go back to these too-good-to-be-true type investments. Bernie Madoff did not approach Joe the Plumber. Uh, I think that's an actual trademark name. I'll have to say Bob the Plumber. <laughs> Forgot Joe the Plumber was like back in McCain's campaign. Um, but he uh, did not approach Sally's school teacher. He did not approach the average guy or gal to, to pitch his scheme to. Bernie Madoff had major movie stars and major, major, very, very wealthy, successful uh, neurosurgeons and and uh, uh, like e- economists. He had all sorts of people who should have known better and who had the access to proper tax and legal and financial planning uh, professionals that the average person doesn't have. He, pre- he preyed on them. I mean, his account minimum for many years was a million dollars, and then he became $5 million, where Bernie did not allow you to even come near him unless you were a multimillionaire. So, and it always it boggles my mind that here you had people who, by any measure, are financially successful. They've made it. They've, they've, they've got millions in their name. And here they, they hear a guy who says, I will manage this money for you, and I will give you this unbelievably high rate of return. And all you have to do is write the check to Bernie Madoff, and we will take care of it. Oh, and I'll print the statement that proves to you how much you have in your account every month. And these people who should have been much more financially savvy and certainly had people around them that should have been on board with watching the account and being having a healthy level of skepticism... These people, already wealthy, were, were preyed upon by a guy knowing that he could prey upon your greed. Okay? So, <clears throat> you have Bernie Madoff um, going to rich people and telling them ridiculous things. And the rich people believed it. Okay? That just goes to show, though... On the, on the other side, and to me, one of the greatest Ponzi schemes of all time is the Powerball and the Lotto. Um, that the, that's where, the, where the, the little guy goes for his Ponzi scheme, where he puts in five bucks and with the promise of, of you know, uh, multiple, multiple millions. I've actually asked people sometimes, because Invest Advisors really focuses and wants to work with just working regular, average, ordinary Americans. That's, what, uh, that's where my heart is. I'd like to work with those people. The wealthy have got lots and lots of people who want, who want to help them. The middle class and, and the, the young person just getting started, no one wants to touch you. They don't think you have enough money. So Invest said, you know what, we'll, we'll help those folks. But when I've actually asked people, what is your plan for retirement? What are you going to do? They say, well, we, we, we buy lotto tickets every week. 
we invest $20 a week in lotto tickets. And uh, folks, if in the back of your mind, it's fun to play it if you want to go to Vegas and blow some money knowing you're going to go lose it or buy a lotto ticket for that, you know, knowing you're never going to win it. But, you know, what the heck? Um, that's one thing. But when you think, when you actually mad believe that I'm going to win the lotto and that's what I'm going to keep focusing on, I would almost call that delusional or magical thinking because people don't understand the odds are so phenomenally stacked against them. I mean, you are like 10 times more likely to be eaten by a shark than you are to win the lotto. Like 10, you would be eaten by a shark 10 times before you'll win the lotto. That's how preposterous the the odds are, but people will fall for them. And then the lotto, now to the benefit of at least some of the lottos in the states and things, the money that is basically ripped off from poor people go back to doing things um, that they claim are, are good for the community, schools or parks or something like that. But it's, it's basically a huge tax on the lower income people in America for the false promise of some huge payout. So I, I could go on and on, but that's another type of thing to avoid. But you got to keep your greed in check, guys. If somebody comes to you and they propose an investment to you and there's obviously something not right with the risk and return, Okay, it's meaning that they they're they're making a promise that um, that this you're going to get twenty percent return and it's very very short term it'll only take a month or maybe six weeks um, or or there's you know eighteen percent return and no downside there's no risk guys your your alarms should be ringing okay let me say something very clearly as a professional in this financial world risk and return are always like rails on a train track. Okay, they always go together. Anybody that tells you that they can find you an investment that gives you great return with either little or no risk, or that they can, I mean, some sort of a weird twist of that, they're either, not, either lying to you outright or they don't know what they're talking about. And I'll say that very clearly. If you have somebody tell you that there is a, an easy money thing, in this investment world, that this is a sure thing, or there's no downside, or there's no risk, or little risk, and or just huge, ridiculous, high double-digit or triple. I mean, sometimes I've heard triple-digit return promises over 10 years and things. It, it, any kind of promises on return in the investing world, he's a liar and should be avoided, like like nobody's business. Run away from people who promise return. Okay. So anyway, I think that's it today. So to sum up real quick, because boy, this, these things, I promise 30 minutes and then I go 45. Um, check your broker's history. That's number one, okay? And the firm that they're working with. Number two, avoid um, either registered investment advisors, fee-only advisors, or commissioned agents who take custody of your money. That will help. Number three, insist on seeing financial records of small firms or any non-publicly traded company. Okay, if you're with Wells Fargo or some of the giants, you're you're okay. But if you're going to uh, a small niche guy who says he's got a little hedge fund or a little something going on in oil or something, because we're in Texas, there's a lot of that. Um, insist on seeing financial records that have been audited, that have been through a third party. Okay, um, number four, work with a fiduciary. That's my own personal standard. Um, it's too easy to work with somebody who doesn't have to legally keep your best interests in mind. And a fiduciary, although they can still rip you off, 
um, there's a, an extra added burden and there's extra regulatory scrutiny on those individuals, okay? Number five, avoid any kind of untraded or, or under the radar or off the main grid types of investments if your money is, if you're serious about keeping them. If it's money you can't afford to lose, don't gamble or wage it, wager it on things that you couldn't just pull up tomorrow on, on Google Finance and, and check its price, okay? Keep it with large, actively traded, common investments. For the average person, that's plenty. You can still get to your financial goals without getting into weird, niche, bizarre specialty things, okay? And then number six, please, if it sounds too good to be true, you're going to have to slap that greedy little guy down inside your mind and realize if it sounds too good, it is too good. Okay? I'll keep this as quick as I normally can. I want to thank you so much for listening. This is Jeremy Torgerson again at Invest Advisors. We would love to hear your feedback on not only our, our podcasts, but also what kind of subjects you'd like to have me talk about. Shoot me an email, please, at jtorgerson at investadvisors.com. Until then, we'll see you again in two weeks, and I'll talk to you then. Have a great day.